It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, March 5th, 2009. Lots going on out there. Lots to report on. Lots to comment on. Also got some great emails from y'all. Gotta keep that up. Where am I going to start? The stack is pretty thick here today. Never worry. If we don't get through the whole thing, we could uh, save some of it for tomorrow. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. Our job here at Fighting for the Faith is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically and to think critically and to think in a way that causes you to ask the question, is what I'm hearing the Word of God, or am I hearing something else. And I have to warn you ahead of time, this could cause supreme dissatisfaction, especially if you're attending a church where you're not getting the gospel and you're not being fed God's word in context and properly and being taught sound doctrine. In which case, uh, you might come to a crisis of conscience, but don't blame me. Blame God's word. All right, we got a great program lined up today. Uh, we're going to work through some listener email, including an email from KJV Tom. KJV Tom has been emailing me for a while now. He says he's an avid listener, and he's taken me to task on several issues. We won't be able to get to all of his email today. In fact, we might take a few days to get through KJV Tom's emails. But today we're going to talk about the rapture because he claims that there's biblical evidence for the rapture. And uh, we'll have to uh, take a look at his email and compare what he says and the, the biblical passages that he's bringing to bear to see if they support the doctrine or the teaching of the rapture. Now, we're also going to be uh, taking a look at uh, Tim Stevens in his blog. He, he, Tim Stevens is one of the pastors over at Granger Community Church, and apparently he thinks they've got their edge back because they're, they sent out 80,000 postcards you know, advertising their new upcoming Sex for Sale sermon series. And uh, and so he's uh, there's been some discussion. Let's put it that way on his blog regarding this. And and so we're going to ask we're going to look at the golden calf question that was posed by Tim Stevens. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, what is the church and is the seeker sensitive methodology that churches like Granger Community Church, Willow Creek, Saddleback that they're employing and promoting. Is it even biblical? Uh, then we're going to get to some news today. Uh, Tony Blair is warning that Christians uh, must speak out in an aggressively secularist age. And there's a small, maybe temporary victory for a, a Christian campus group over at Wright State University in Ohio. And then today we'll also get to a sermon review. <laughs> uh, a sermon review on that uh, incredibly relevant sermon topic uh, based on the Discovery channel tv show uh dirtiest jobs there's <laughs> kid you not we're going we're going to listen to it in all its glory but uh the fun stuff doesn't really even begin until about 10 to 12 minutes into the sermon it, it's uh, but we we like to experience it in all of its glory because i mean this is what's passing for preaching nowadays so i i you know the fact that uh, these seeker sensitive purpose-driven guys are all about worship experiences we want to make sure that you experience their experiences in all of its experiential uh, glory 
Is that the right word? <laughs> All right, moving along. All right, Russell writes from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. He says, Chris, I want to thank you for uh, Wednesday's speech from Dr. Deaver, the Reverend Dr. Deaver. And he said at the pastor's convention, every pastor should hear this and preach it on Sunday. Yeah, I thought uh, the Reverend Dr. Deaver's... <laughs> Oh, that was a great, great, great speech. I, I don't know if it was a sermon or not. I don't think it was a sermon, but you know, it, I was it was delivered at a conference on uh, on the gospel, and it was fantastic. But then uh, Russ asks a uh, an interesting question. He says, "A second, I have a seeker sensitive question of doctrine. If I give up TV for Lent, as one of as one emergent pastor did, can I still attend a seeker sensitive satellite campus?" Where the pastor is shown on a t- on TV, Russ, I, I understand that this is a tough theological question, and I'll just answer it straight up. No, absolutely not. You, 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 Jesus says, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no." And if you have determined in your heart that you're going to give up television for Lent, then you can't attend a seeker sensitive satellite campus where your only contact with the pastor is going to be via television monitor. I mean, that's I mean. If you guys disagree with me, send me a pa- <laughs> biblical passages that would say otherwise. All right, I got another email here from Dave in uh, in Southern California, and he says, first off, why the move to the Midwest? Not to pry, but, well, okay, a little bit. The, Dave, it's real simple. The, the reason why we moved to the Midwest was to lower our financial footprint in these tough economic times and the fact that, uh, you know, we've that Pirate Christian Radio needs to watch its pennies. Or, or pinch its pennies. What do you do with a penny? Do you watch it or pinch it? I think you pinch your pennies. Personally, I've never pinched them. Um, but we have, we're in need of pinching our pennies. And basically what it came down to is, is that we did not believe that it would be a smart and good use of Pirate Christian Radio's uh, finances to uh, put on to Pirate Christian Radio the burden of having to pay me a salary that would uh, enable me to live in a very expensive coastal town in Southern California. As much as I love San Clemente, and believe me, probably one of the best places I've ever lived, uh, it just doesn't make sense uh, when we could live in a town that has all of the same stores, practically the same restaurants, a great school district, and uh, and and snow, but uh, and, and then muggy weather during the summer. But that doesn't really matter. But living here in Indiana, it's literally about ninety percent less expensive, and the people are nice too. Um, so the, the decision was made to move to the Midwest in order to make it so that you know Pirate Christian Radio can thrive. We'll consider this to be a, a, a ministry move. Well, <clears throat> you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, uh, Dave continues. He says, I'm listening to your sermon review about money being sexy or, or whatever, preached by the MBA slash engineering major. The first 10 minutes so far seem to be all about the speaker. Oi. That, yeah, that, that's a very astute uh, that's a very astute uh, thing that you've noticed there. Yeah, that's kind of the problem. He's preaching about himself, and apparently he's the supreme example of what we as Christians need to uh, be following. Anyway, uh, Dave points out, he says, a verse comes to mind, and it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, which says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Oh, now, don't be pulling the Bible out there, Dave. I mean, and by the way, that's a great, great verse, and it's right on the money. 
Uh, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be preaching ourselves. We should be preaching Christ. Anyway, he says, most of the sermons uh, you review uh, seem riveted on the speaker's lives, experiences, stories, etc. Yeah, uh, Americans seem to culturally be narcissistic. And, uh, I mean, isn't Christianity all about me and uh, and how great I am and how God is making my life better and giving me the abundant blessings of whatever? Yeah, that's the problem. It's a different gospel. He says, it used to be that sermons were based on the Bible with life illustrations sprinkled in to help listeners out. Now, this is the best part of this email. He says, fine. Now that situation is reversed. The Bible seems to be the, to be the sprinkle, the condiment, the seasoning, and the stories and illustrations are the main course. Dave, you are spot on. That's the problem, is that uh, we've in America have traded biblical preaching where there's illustrations to help you understand the meat. If, 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 let me put it into, um, since you're using condiment terms, and this is really making me hungry for something like a good barbecued hamburger, you know, like during the 4th of July, you know what I'm talking about? You big, those big home beef patties that, oh, my wife makes these things that are amazing. And she, and anyway, sorry, I'm <laughs> All distracted by food here, but uh, if if the sermon's a meal, okay, and if it's one of these ham these the Fourth of July hamburger meals, then technically the biblical portion is supposed to be that big, beefy patty right there in the center of the hamburger. That's the where the the where the, if that's the Bible is supposed to play that role. It's it's supposed to be the beef in the hamburger. But nowadays, uh, the Bible is actually just a little bit of seasoning, and the meat of the sermon, it's, it's not even meat. It's this um, fake meat. It's kind of like a soy substitute that these guys are putting in there, and it's all about them. But uh, yeah, you're right on. All right, got an email from our good friend across the pond who has four names. That's Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. He says, I was just listening to uh, yesterday's Fighting for the Faith, and my first thought was, oh, dear. (laughs) Now, this is the debt sermon one. He says, I was irresistibly reminded of a story about John Wesley's parents. Uh, Wesley's father, Samuel, was an Anglican clergyman in the town of Epworth, uh, Lincolnshire. He was elected to convocation on a couple of occasions, which meant that he had to employ a curate, a junior clergyman, to take the services for him. On one of these occasions, he heard in London that his wife had begun to hold meetings in the rectory, uh, that's the parsonage, and Samuel Wesley was annoyed when he got home. He challenged his wife. Her defense was that the curate never preached about anything except for paying your debts. Samuel Wesley was incredulous at this, and so to test the man, he asked him to preach on Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The curate entered the pulpit and began thus, Faith is an excellent grace and produces many excellent qualities, among which is the paying of debts. (laughs) Oh, man. Apparently this this <laughs> apparently this is Samuel Wesley's curate redivivus redivivus I know that sounds like a Harry Potter word uh it redivivus is latin that means come back to life again and he says uh, I certainly wouldn't put it past some of these people to repeat what the Epworth curate did and now I must go on to study to preach Christ in London and on Sunday here in Tabor Baptist uh, Church 
in uh, Leon. Oh, I can't even pronounce this. Leon Tressant, uh, where old, we're old fashioned and we believe in preaching Christ crucified, which is why I like my senior pastor here. Well, praise God. <laughs> Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmingly, your emails are always very fascinating. Good stuff. All right, now we've come. <clears throat> I wonder if I should play the Darth Vader uh, theme song. You know, dun, 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 dun. We got an email from KJV Tom in Kansas City. KJV stands for King James Version, and I'm assuming that since he, uh, he, he, he wants to be known as KJV Tom, that he, like other people whom I've met along the way in my Christian journey, is one of these King James Version-only guys. Now, just so you know, I do not believe in anything that even remotely resembles something called an inspired translation of the Bible. I do believe that the King James Version is a decent translation and that scholastically and scholarly and academically it has some troubles but for the most part, it's a decent translation, and the problem with the, the translation itself at this point is that it's using an archaic dialect of uh, of English. Um, King James English is not even spoken in Britain anymore. You know, it's closer in Britain. What the people speak in Britain today is closer to King James English than what we have here in America uh, but um, just just so you know, I have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages, and in all of the years that I've done translation work and reading the original texts in their original languages and translating them from the original languages into English, I have yet to have a translation that I've worked on from the original languages into English. I have yet to have my translation come out in King James English, just so you know. Um, but... I digress. This is not what this email is about. Tom, King James Version Tom in Kansas City writes, he says, Chris, I heard you trying to answer the girl who wrote to you asking why you teach the rapture is not scriptural when it is found all throughout the scripture. Mm -hmm. Your response is more than 400 years old and has been blown full of holes so many times I weary of taking up the subject again. By the way, I encourage you, if you, if you hear, hear me say something that you think is not in keeping with the, what the Scripture teaches, then you are to send me an email and let me know. And believe it or not, I actually prefer these kinds of emails over others. So uh, I'm very thankful for Tom's email. Anyway, he says, however, it did make me wonder how you can believe in and teach some of the things that you do and tr uh, that truly and in fact have absolutely no basis, not even a hint or a suggestion in the scripture. I'm thinking, really? What, <laughs> what doctrines am I teaching that have no hint in the scripture? Um, but, uh, he'll tip his hand as to what he thinks that is here in a minute. He says, I used to be a Lutheran myself, so I understand how these things are just accepted without any scriptural support whatsoever. Now I'm going to stop you there, KJV Tom, for a second. Um, I don't believe any doctrines just because they're Lutheran. Uh, not one. In fact, I'm constantly, uh, comparing creeds, doctrines, the confessions of the Lutheran faith to the word of God and doing in-depth biblical work on them. And I believe that the confessions of the Lutheran church 
that are found in the Book of Concord actually give us what I consider to be the most accurate interpretation of the scriptures out there. And there's not a single doctrine in there that I hold to uh, based upon zero evidence in scripture uh, for those doctrines. But uh, as you'll see, we'll see as we read further in your email that I don't think that's what you're talking about, though. Um, so anyway, we we continue. I don't expect you to give them up because I know how emotionally devastating it would be to accept that you have been buying and selling a theological bill of goods. Again, a theological bill of goods. On what basis? Uh, what, what, what am I selling here that's a bill of goods? However, go easy on the rapture girl. She has much more evidence for her faith than you will ever have for stained glass windows, sitting in a pew, and coming to the communion rail to receive a communion wafer from a guy dressed in vestments. Ah, there we go. That's the rub. Okay, so apparently, uh, without any biblical basis whatsoever, I you know I value stained glass windows, sitting in a pew, coming to the communion rail to receive a communion wafer from a guy dressed in vestments. Now, let me let me say this for a second, KJV Tom. Um, you're right. The Bible doesn't say anything about stained glass. The Bible doesn't even mention pews once. As far as communion rails, they're completely silent in the scriptures. And as for a guy wearing a vestment, the Bible doesn't say anything about wearing vestments either. But keep in mind, um, the Bible doesn't say anything about wearing pants or underwear, combing your hair, wearing a suit or tie, uh, dressing your Sunday best. It doesn't say anything about that stuff either. Yet I would hope that uh, pastors would wear underwear while they're in the pulpit. You would hope that too. Um, In fact, I can't think of a single Sunday where I have been to church where I have been without my underwear myself. Yet the scriptures nowhere tell me that I need to wear underwear when I go to church. So that being the case, this is not really what I would consider a very strong argument. You're arguing from silence. And I would basically say that when it comes to stained glass window, pews, the communion rails, investments, those are things that fall under Christian liberty. Now, I happen to prefer liturgical churches over uh, happy, clappy, praise band, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, this-is-the-air-I-breathe type of churches. And the reason I prefer them is because liturgical churches do a fine job of having the entire service from beginning to end focusing on Christ and being chock-full of Scripture and sound doctrine. In fact, we'll go through some of that in tomorrow's broadcast. But the the rub in your email, at least what we'll focus in on this part of the email, uh, KJV Tom, is that you have provided what you believe to be five very important verses that support the doctrine or the teaching of the rapture. Okay? And um, in your email, you were kind enough to actually reproduce a chart 
and on the left-hand side, it says doctrine or practice, and on the right-hand side, it says supporting scripture. So let me let me read to you your uh, you know regarding the rapture portion of this, since that's what we're going to focus on today. He says, uh, so the doctrine or practice that you are defending is the practice of deferring to the uh, wait sorry uh, believers being taken or disappearing and others being left behind. That's a rapture. You quote uh, Luke seventeen. Uh, you uh, thirty four through thirty seven. You, you you believe believers being changed from mortal to immortal, uh, from mortal to immortal bodies instantaneously. That you describing as rapture is found in First Corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty three. Believers being taken up into the air at the same time believers are being changed above. That's you consider that to be support for the rapture. That's First Thessalonians chapter four sixteen through eighteen. And then we got uh, believers being taken up out of the way before the. Judge Judgment falls on unbelievers, uh, being a pattern established by God. Uh-huh, pattern. Second uh, Peter chapter two uh, verses five through nine, and then we've got believers being kept from the predicted com- coming hour of temptation or tribulation. That is Revelation chapter three, verse ten. Now let me go through these. In fact, you know, here's the deal. I can quote to you Bible references. Until I'm blue in the face. But in order to establish a doctrine, you need to have clear passages of Scripture that support the doctrine in context in the verses that you are citing. Okay, And I don't think, KJV Tom, that you've actually met that level, that standard necessary to establish the doctrine of the rapture. Now, important thing here is, is that uh, it's always important for us to define our terms. Now, just so you know, there is not a universally accepted doctrine as it pertains to the rapture. The general idea behind the rapture, though, is that um, that Jesus' second coming is going to occur in stages. It's going to occur in stages. And so at, I was taught as a Nazarene, when I was a Nazarene and an evangelical, I was taught to believe in what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. The basic gist of this teaching goes like this, that right before uh, the end of time, there's going to be this, this seven-year tribulation period where Satan is going to basically have his heyday with humanity, which, by the way... Um, I do believe the devil's going to have his heyday with humanity, and that that will be the tribulation period. And I think that uh, we're definitely closer to that today than we were yet yesterday. Is it imminent? I have no idea. I don't know when Christ is coming back. But when I was a Nazarene, I was taught that what's going to happen is is that just before this seven-year tribulation period where Satan is going to have his heyday, and the whole world's going to go crazy and haywire, that Jesus is going to secretly return and rapture the church, that, that they would be caught up with Jesus in the cloud, and that Jesus then would return to heaven with the believers that he raptured, and they would be, quote, taken out of the way until the, until the tribulation period is done. Now, I think this this understanding of the rapture fits perfectly with the Left Behind uh, book series, okay? In fact, if you've uh, <laughs> had the unfortunate experience of seeing the very first Left Behind movie 
Um, that was not Kurt Cameron's best role, let me tell you that. Um, then you know, this is exactly what the Left Behind uh, books basically propose, that Jesus is returning secretly, taking everyone back to heaven. Seven years is over. Then there's you got the visible return of Christ. Now, there's also some other views of the rapture. There also happens to be a mid-tribulation view. And there also happens to be a post-tribulation view. So those who believe in the rapture do not universally accept the timeline for the rapture. The thing that they have in common is this belief that Jesus' second coming occurs in stages. So that being the case, KJV, Tom, you haven't told me whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or any of that. But um, I'm going to assume at this point, that what we're referring to is um, is that Jesus is going to return in stages, whether that be pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib. That's not really what we're going to talk about here. Um, although I would think, based upon you, the emphasis of your email, that what we're dealing with here in you is, is a belief in the pre-trib rapture. Now, I could be wrong. I could be wrong because you didn't say that. I'm just guessing it based upon some hints that I saw in your email. So now the question that's before us is, if we look at the text that you cited in your email to me, in context, do these, do these verses teach and support the idea that Jesus is going to secretly return prior to the tribulation, rapture the church, and take them back to heaven? Or, when we read them in context do we discover that there is no secret second return and that Jesus doesn't return in in stages. Instead, he just returns. That's what we're going to have to focus on when we come back from our first break. In fact, we're up on our first break. Can you believe it? Man, time flies when you're having fun. So, uh, in fact, it it came up on me so quickly, I almost feel like I was raptured. (laughs) Anyway, uh, if you... If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard so far on Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Avast there, Pirate Christian Radio listener. Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear. Don't be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. Listening to Fighting for the Faith here on Pirate Christian Radio. I want to remind you all Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. If you are growing in your biblical discernment, if you are growing in your understanding of the Christian faith, sound doctrine, how to defend the Christian faith, and how to think biblically, how to think critically, then would you partner with us? We could truly use your help to to pay our bills and continue to bring you this important outreach. You can do that by uh, logging on to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button. Or you can uh, write a check and make it payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. Zero three eight. All right, we're in the middle of uh, of responding to an email from KJV Tom in Kansas City, and uh, he's provided me with five what he believes to be five clear passages that support the doctrine of the rapture. 
Now, for the sake of argument, I've defined the rapture according to the way I was taught it as a Nazarene, and that is is that Christ returns in stages. One is secret, and the other is uh, is visible, and that the secret rapture occurs prior to the tribulation, where Jesus, you know, sneaks up on the planet, whisks away christians and then takes them to heaven you know so that they're not around during the seven year tribulation period when satan is running haywire on the planet now i'm going to do these out of order uh kjv tom and there's a reason why one of the uh principles for in for properly understanding scripture for properly interpreting scripture is a principle that we call scripture interprets scripture where you have and clear passages always govern by the way um, so the idea here is, is that because in the Holy Bible we are dealing with, uh, even though it's a singular book, it's many authors over a span of thousands of years, yet every author was inspired to write what he wrote because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write them, write those things. So um, there's a consistency that we, can, that we see in the Scriptures because... Uh, Every passage of Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that being the case, when the Holy Spirit speaks on a topic in one uh, book or one letter, and then the Holy Spirit inspires another author to speak on the same topic, you can take both passages of Scripture and use them to help uh, to help better understand the overall teaching that the, that the Holy Spirit is inspiring. That being the case, we're going to spend our first uh, amount of time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, the, the other principle is, is that clear passages always govern, okay? Clear passages always govern. That is, is that when you have two passages of Scripture on the same topic, the one that is clear is the one that governs, and the one that seems vague and you're not quite sure what it means, it doesn't get to govern. It's only the one that is clear that gets to govern, um, so uh, we're going to uh, then get into First Thessalonians chapter four, um, and let me see here. Uh, okay, oh, no wonder I don't recognize this. I had it in the King James. <laughs> All right, now Paul writing to uh, the Thessalonian church, he says. In verse 13, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That means those who are dead, that you may uh, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. Okay, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, KJV Tom, I want to point something out to you here. You wanted me to look at verses 16 through 18, and one of the rules of sound biblical hermeneutics is also context, context, context. When we read 
1 Corinthians 4 in context. The question now is, is that we read it in context. We read it from 13 to 18. Does this passage teach that Jesus will secretly return, catch us up into the clouds with Jesus, and then he's going to return to heaven and wait until the end of the, of the tribulation? The answer is no, this passage doesn't say that. In fact, just the natural sense of the passage teaches us that, you know, Paul, the context here is Paul telling people not to be uninformed about those who have died in the faith, okay? And what and how eschatologically things are going to play out. And he says, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, okay? So... Paul here is, many have argued that when he, when he penned these words, that he was actually expecting to be alive when Christ returned. But um, he says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now listen what he's descending from heaven with. With a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Does that sound like a secret rapture to you? The cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God? Uh, No, not at all. This is not a secret rapture. In fact, what Paul here is describing is the very last day, the day when Jesus returns. Not secretly, not in stages, the day he returns. If you believe that Jesus is going to return in stages, you need to bring clear passages that teach that Jesus' second coming is going to happen in multiple stages. First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, when read in context, do not, do not teach that Jesus is going to return in stages. But what we see here is that uh, he's going to return with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will always be with the Lord. Okay? So, First uh, Thessalonians 4, 1, uh, 16 through 18, does not, in context, teach a secret return of Christ. Okay, it does teach that when Christ returns, those of us who are alive, if any of us, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to be, but uh, those uh, Christians who are alive at the time of Christ's return will be caught up in the clouds with Christ and they will be transformed, you know, within the twinkling of an eye. But what we're going to find here is, is that this is a good governing passage because it's so clear. And what's, and when you read the other passages with this clear passage in mind, everything seems to fall into place rather well. Now, another passage that you quoted to me uh, was Luke chapter 17, verses 34 through 37. And again, um, we're going to read this in context. Why? Because context is important. You don't just take something like this and just, you know, clip out a couple of verses you know, here and there. But um, so I'm going to read then starting in Luke chapter 17, going all the way back to verse 22. And here's what this passage says in context. 
And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end of the uh, from one end to the other, so will be the Son of Man in His day. Now stop. Okay. Again, the question that's before us is: Does the Scripture teach that Christ will return in stages, and the first stage will be a secret stage? Verse 24 of Luke 17 says, As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. Um, Lightning, is that secret or is that kind of out there for everybody to see? It's obviously out there for everybody to see. This is not secret at all. We continue, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by uh, his, this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now listen to this. Jesus is likening his second return to the day in which Noah was put into the ark and God closed up the ark itself and people were basically going about their business, doing their normal everyday things, eating, drinking, and giving in marriage, and having fun, and and all the things that they do, and disaster came on them suddenly. Okay? Now, um, the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when uh, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Now listen, okay? Jesus is not only giving one illustration in in Luke 17, he's giving two, Noah and Lot. And Noah and Lot were both saved through these terrible events. God rescued them through it, while everybody else was destroyed, okay? And so Jesus is using these Old Testament examples to saying what it's going to be like for people on the day when he returns. The Christians will be, will get through this safely while everybody else will experience disaster and destruction and it will come on them suddenly. That's the parallel that Jesus is setting up in this passage. And he's saying that it's just like lightning lights up the sky. This is not a secret thing. This is a huge thing. Everybody's going to notice it, and it's going to be disastrous, and it's going to fall on people suddenly and unexpectedly. Okay? So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay? So verse 30 of Luke 17 makes it clear This isn't a secret rapture that's occurring in this passage. It's saying that the Son of Man is going to be revealed. Well, hard to reveal something that, uh, you know, if, if, I mean, how could Jesus be revealed if his return is supposed to be a secret rapture, right? Doesn't make any sense at all for us to be talking that way. In fact, let me look something up here in, in the Greek because I'm pretty convinced, yeah, yeah, uh, apocalypto. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's a revealing of a mystery. Um, to reveal, disclose, to bring to light, to make fully known. So Luke chapter 17, verse 30, when you read it, when you read Luke 17 in context, 
by the way, we're not even up to the, the three verses you quoted yet, uh, KJV Tom, which are 34 through 37. It makes it clear that Jesus is going to be revealed. Okay. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now we're up to the verses that you quoted, KJV Tom, verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two, uh, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they, and they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, when we take this passage of Scripture, which clearly shows a visible, revealing, like lightning, sudden destruction uh, appearance of Jesus Christ on the scene, a sudden and visible second coming, it describes when he comes that there will be people who will be taken up and others will be left. How are we to understand that? That's not a secret rapture, because when you read it in context, there's nothing secret in this passage at all. Instead, it flows perfectly with what the Apostle Paul taught, that he says he was what was revealed to him from the Lord, that, uh, that when Jesus returns, the Christians who are left will be caught up together in the clouds with Christ. Makes perfect sense. And again, this is not a secret rapture that's being taught in this passage. Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Now, this is an interesting passage that you would quote this, KJV, Tom. And the reason I say that is because this passage, when you read 1 Corinthians 15 in context, especially the section that you're referring to, this is talking about resurrection. Okay, in fact, let me back up to verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15 here so that we read this in context. You want to you want to focus in or zero in on verses 51 through 53. Well, again, we read things in context here. So when we read 1 Corinthians 15, 42, uh, we read, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is, uh, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life uh, living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those uh, those who are of the dust. And it is, and as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here, the context of what's going on here is Paul is talking about resurrection. Okay? And uh, this you know, segment of the scriptures... Um, you know, Paul kind of starts it off with the, the you know, um, first verse 12 really kicks off this context on resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
right on. In fact, you want you want to overthrow Christianity, produce the bones of Jesus Christ, and you've successfully accomplished that. So Paul, writing here this entire segment, all the way back down through the end of the chapter, is about resurrection. And Paul's describing what resurrection is all about and how we will be raised in these immortal bodies that can, you know, that will be just like Christ's resurrected body. You want to know what our resurrected bodies are going to look like? Look at Jesus without the, the scars in the hands, of course. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1550 continues. This says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Now notice this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 blends perfectly, perfectly with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And also Luke 17. This trumpet, again, is mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15. And again, this cannot be referring to a secret return of Christ in multiple stages. Because it says, in in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So, KJV Tom, 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53 does not, when you read it in context, teach a secret re- second coming of Jesus that occurs in a stage where he takes us up in the clouds and whisks us off to heaven uh, for the seven-year tribulation. Instead, again, it's describing literally and perfectly with the other passages, Jesus' second return as being a visible event, that one that not only that we can see but we can hear. And when he returns, the dead in Christ rise and we are gathered up together in the clouds with them, and we're transformed from immortal, I mean, from being mortal beings, perishable, to being imperishable and immortal. And our, you know, in the twinkling of an eye, things are changed. That'll be a glorious day for Christians. Not one of destruction, by the way, for us, but a very glorious day. All right, so that being the case, let me uh, continue on here. Second Peter chapter 2. All right. Um... So KJV Tom is also quoted Second Peter chapter two verses five through nine, and uh, let me read it in context. In Second Peter chapter two, the context here is false prophets. Okay, we read in verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning 
turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the uh, sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. So here we go. Uh, Tom writes that this passage... Second Peter chapter two, verses five through nine, uh, says that believers being taken out of the way before judgment falls on unbelievers being a pattern established by God. He says that that's a rapture. Well, well, wait a second. When you read this in context, okay, okay, read it in context. It's talking about false teachers, false prophets, evil and wickedness, and how we have to suffer and endure. Uh, being with these people. Okay, well, um, and verse 9 says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment, okay, until the day of judgment. It doesn't say here at all that that Jesus is going to take us out of the way during the tribulation. It doesn't say that. Just read it in context, and you'll realize that you're reading that into the text. You're eisegeting that. You're reading it in. It doesn't say it. Anyway, okay, the last verse is Revelation 3.10, and this is not too hard to uh, to work with. Revelation chapter 3, uh, this is Jesus speaking, uh, having a letter being written to the church at Sardis. Who is this letter being written to? The church at Sardis. We read in context, Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and to the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that you received the, uh, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now listen. Jesus is saying he's going to come like a thief if they don't repent and wake up. Is this a universal application, or is this a specific application? In reality here, this is a very specific application. This is not something that's, you know, that's, you know, but you could say Jesus does the same thing. But, you know, you got to be careful here because this is Jesus' word to a specific church. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that's, I'm sorry, verse 7 is now, we're changing directions here. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens, no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Okay, so this next section, verse 10, falls into this one right here. This is written to the church in Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, now, is this a promise to everybody or to the church in Philadelphia? KJV Tom writes that Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 says that believers being kept from the predicted coming hour of temptation or tribulation is rapture. No, it's not. You're reading that into the text, and this is not a universal application. This was a word spoken specifically to the church in Philadelphia. Anyway, um, KJV Tom, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to write that email and to quote those passages. However, the passages that you quoted do not support the teaching of Christ's secret second return. In fact, they don't teach it at all. Instead, they teach that when Jesus Christ returns, it will be a visible and sudden event. People will hear it, people will see it, see it all over the world, and that we Christians who are alive on the day that he comes will be caught up together with him in the clouds, while the rest of the world will be left to face judgment. And what a terrible day that will be. And it encourages us to preach the gospel until that day. All right, we've come up on our second break. Wow, this email took a long time. I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to shorten some other things. I'm going to be able to get through my entire stack of stuff today. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that I've said so far today on the show, you can do so at uh, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Mm. 
This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important book gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Manouge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially that articulated during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Theologia et Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. It took a lot longer to answer that email than I thought, but I wanted to do a good biblical rebuttal, if you would. For the very reason that it demonstrates the importance of context and clear passages, I'm convinced if people would just read God's Word in context, apply a little bit of elbow grease then uh, we wouldn't be burdened and plagued with the uh, many of the heresies and problems that we're having now in the church. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is hour number two. Now, because that uh, took a little bit longer, I'm going to have to save some things for tomorrow's program. Um, and I kind of make a decision. There's one I want to read, though. And uh, so tomorrow we'll talk about the, uh, the campus cr- uh, group in Ohio, that uh, can the, the Christian campus group that's able to meet again, and then also tomorrow we'll we'll talk about the uh, the golden calf question for Granger Community Church that's up at Tim Stevens's blog. We'll talk about that tomorrow too, so we'll save that for tomorrow. But I wanted to read one news story here uh, before we get to our sermon review, and our sermon review is going to be on that ever relevant Discovery Channel TV show, Dirtiest Jobs. <sighs> Yeah. All right. All right. But uh, let me uh, let me back up here. And what I'll do is I'll play our vintage news music here. This is from the Telegraph in the UK. By the way, if I haven't mentioned it before, I'll mention it again. <laughs> the uh, Brits do a far better job of journalism than the American rags right now. You want to know what's going on in the world? The British papers do a far better job. Uh, the headline reads, Tony Blair warns that Christians must speak out in aggressively secularist age. This was written by Martin Beckford, the religious affairs correspondent for The Telegraph in the UK. The uh, story reads, Mr. Blair said he agreed with church leaders that faith is in danger of being seen as a personal eccentricity rather than an important influence on the country. Interesting point. Uh, that's a good start off. He says... Uh, He also criticized the ludicrous decisions that have led uh, to worshipers punished for expressing their beliefs, such as Caroline Petrie, that's the nurse, 
Uh, the community nurse who was uh, suspended for two months after offering to pray for an elderly patient. And Jenny Kane, the primary school receptionist who still faces the sack after she asked for spiritual support from friends when her daughter was scolded for talking about hell in the playground. Mr. Blair, in the famous words of his spokesman, Alistair Campbell, did not, quote, do God while he was in Downing Street. That's right. He's the former prime minister of Great Britain. And I don't remember him particularly being Christian when he was uh, when he was prime minister. Uh, he later admitted that he feared that he would be labeled a nutter if he spoke publicly about his religious convictions. So what did he decide to do? He decided to um, wait until he was out of office and then speak about his religious convictions. Hmm. But he has since converted to Roman Catholicism and set up the Tony Blair Faith Foundation to promote respect and understanding about the world's major religions. In an interview published in the Church of England newspaper, Mr. Blair said, Sometimes I think we as Christians are more sensitive than we should be, although I say that as someone who, when I was in office, although I was perfectly open about my Christianity nonetheless, kept it within certain boundaries that were restricted in terms of what I said publicly. The position of prime minister puts you in a unique category. Hmm. What do you guys think about this? Interesting. Uh, when it was convenient and expedient for him, he didn't really talk about his Christian faith because he didn't want to be considered to be a nutter. But now that he's out of office, he doesn't have a problem with people considering him to be a nutter. Anyway, he says, but in general terms in British society, there there is a risk that people see faith as a personal eccentricity. Well, there are some people. There are, there are religious people who are eccentric, that's for sure. He asked about the threat of disciplinary action now faced by public sector staff who are open about their religion. He said, I hope and believe that stories of people not being allowed to express their Christianity are exceptional or the result... Hang on a second here. Of individual ludicrous decisions. In my view, it, my view is that people should be proud of their Christianity and able to express it as they wish. Well, now that you're out of office, I mean, you're setting such a fine example. Too bad you didn't set the example while you were in office. Anyway, he admitted that conflict is inevitable between traditional religions and that the new liberal doc- and and the new liberal doctrine of human rights but he went on the real test of a religion is whether in an age of aggressive secularism it has the confidence to go out and make its case by persuasion but which by the way is what really christians have been called to do and if you look at the apostle paul in the book of acts he went out man he went out he went out from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, from public square to public square, trying to convince people that Jesus was the Christ and persuade them using God's word. Mr. Player dis- disclosed, however, that while prime minister, he, he believed equal, uh, equality and diversity were more important than religion in the case of the Catholic adoption agencies who failed in their bid to be exempted from laws requiring them to consider homosexual couples as potential parents. I happen to take the gay rights position, he said, but at the time of the Catholic Adoption Society dispute, I was also concerned that these people who were doing a fantastic job were not put out of business. You, you've got, you have to try to work your way through these issues. Okay, all right. Is it me, or does it, this uh, just seem to be a... Uh, an example of 
wishy-washiness and going back and forth and not having a spine. I mean, he's trying to have a spine without having a spine. Now that he is in a position where he uh, he doesn't have to hide his religion. Wow. Okay, there it is. Just put it out there for you, just so you can hear it and react to it. I mean, it's it's sad. You know, if you're a Christian and you're in politics, there should be no reason why you should try to hide your faith. Doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, you are what you are. All right, we're now going to change gears to that portion of our program where we like to review sermons. Some good, some bad. Yesterday was not a sermon, but it was a great lecture, fantastically done. If you didn't listen to it, uh, the Reverend Dr. Deaver did just this amazing job. Get yesterday's podcast and listen to that whole thing. It was fantastic. This, on the other hand, is the opposite of yesterday's. And um, <sighs> hang in there, because like I said earlier, I want you to experience this one. Because these secret purpose-driven guys and the pastor of uh, the, Oaks, uh, Red, the, the Oaks Red Oak Fellowship, uh, the pastor there, he's as purpose-driven as they get. And about 10, 12 minutes into this one, you're going to be scratching your head. You know, it won't be hard to spot the problems on this one, but the problems are very, very pronounced and very, very dangerous. So without any further ado, uh, you're going to experience the uh, You've Been Called sermon for from the Dirty Jobs sermon series over at the Oaks Fellowship. And it starts off with audio from a video because this pastor, he wants to be a TV star. So what he did is he went out and shot video of him pretending to shoot his own version of Dirty Jobs. I kid you not. And the sermon begins with the audio from Dirty from that experience. And this is Pastor Scott Wilson from the, uh, the Oaks Fellowship. Every day, it's hard-working men and women like you who do the dirty, grimy, gritty jobs that make the world go round. It's not glamorous, but someone's got to do it. We're here today to experience what's known around the world as one of the top ten dirtiest jobs in the universe. At least that's what my wife tells me. We're talking about being a mom, and today, I get to experience it firsthand. Yes, this is the sermon. By the way, this is the same pastor who brought us Theologans for Your Noggins. This is the same church that brought us Theologans for Your Noggins, the uh, sermon series on the writings of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, this is supposed, this is, well, let me put it this way. This particular thing that you're hearing occurred where in, during a church service where you would, in the time slot normally allocated for the sermon. We continue. Let's go. As soon as I arrived, I realized this wasn't going to be easy. Candace had already put a list of things together I needed to take care of, such as changing poopy diapers, okay. baking cookies. Yes, he said poopy. <laughs> I just love it when my pastor says poopy during the sermon. It's such a great word. Cookies, doing the daily laundry, all the while carrying around the littlest one as some kind of baby contraption. Don't worry, we're good. Bye. 
While everything seemed quiet, the first thing was to change the dirty diaper. Okay. Uh, how do you... Okay, wait just a second, buddy. Now what you do on this thing, I think, you kind of fold that up. Looks like pea soup. Uh, now where do you put that stuff? I got you, bud. Oh, you're happy now, aren't you? Uh-oh, there's the door. Come in. Oh. Little to my knowledge, Candace had already told Kara Rayleigh she could bring her two boys over. So here came Caleb and Cannon, and with them came another list of things that Mommy Kara wanted me to do. This is great. See you, Kara. Everything's good. Here, it's okay. How about this? How about this? How about this? Hey. And what do you know? To pile on even more, Candace has told Andrea Lather she can bring her two over as well. <laughs> what in the world am I going to do with all these kids? I don't have a clue how I'm going to do. Change that diaper, change another diaper, take care of him and everybody else, and do all this. This is impossible. Is that okay? Two minutes, 22 seconds into uh, the thing that's supposed to happen during the normal sermon time in a church service. I we, I don't know. We can't call this a sermon yet. Is this his, like his first time to take it out of the bottle or something? Okay, I'll do that. Okay. What? You, you want to watch a movie? Okay, I'm coming up. Well, let's go see. Let's go see if we can get you a movie, okay? Okay, let's get the movie. How do you get this thing on? I think that would have been an important thing to figure out before your mom left. Guys, do you know how any of this stuff works? No. I know. How about we play Clean Up the Bedroom? Clean Up is not a game. It isn't? No. No. I'll pay you a dollar. No. Two dollars. Somebody's got pee-pee pants. Who was it? I don't know. Did you need me to change your britches? No. They're okay? Yeah, okay. they're not okay. <laughs> this is the craziest thing in the whole world. I'm so glad I'm a man. Yeah. This is horrible. Oh, Parker. Oh, are you okay? Right here, buddy. Oh, God. This isn't, bad. This isn't good. Hey, it's okay up there. Okay. Oh, junk the cookies. All right, I, I, I wanted you to experience. I have to fast forward this because it's just irritating. It goes on. Well, let's let's listen in here. Something's wrong with the toilet. Yeah, we're up to five minutes there. I think it's like six minutes long. Hang on. With everything I had to do today. Yeah, there we go. This is the tail end of it. By the way, we'll put the YouTube video up of this little part from the sermon up at the Museum of Idolatry after the program today. Museum of Idolatry is a little leaven.com. I was pooped. Man, they were not kidding. With everything I had to do today, that is one dirty job. He, he got applause for that. A six-minute version of uh, the knockoff of Discovery Channel's Dirtiest Jobs, and he uh, 
people should have escorted him outside of the church at this point because he's a pastor. He's supposed to be preaching from the word. But believe me when I tell you, about five minutes from now into the sermon, things are really going to get crazy. Just hang in there. Well, welcome. We're starting a brand new series today entitled Dirty Jobs. And let me tell you, that was no joke. That was three hours of really tough work. I almost said hell, but that wouldn't have been nice. I mean, it was really, really tough. So I've already had people ask me, were you really by yourself? Yes, except for the camera guys getting them to do stuff to mess with me the whole time. I mean, it was a, a crazy deal. And so I like, I mean, I had six kids under the age of four for three hours straight. And, and I was telling my wife, I had to change diapers. I was cleaning the toilet, cleaning the house, doing the dishes, doing the, the laundry, uh, clean, doing all this stuff. And my wife said, it was only three hours. And so I stand here today to all the mothers in the room. I stand in awe of you. You have my respect. Let's give a big hand for all the moms. Wow. Wow. That's some hard work. And and as we start off today, I want to give a huge welcome to all of our campuses and to all of you who are worshiping with us online and through the uh, weekly podcast. Man, I'm so glad you're with us today. And our prayer is that you'll be encouraged and challenged as we do this study and, and begin this study for the next three weeks on the story of Jonah, that you'll be challenged to give your life fully to the call of God on your life. All right, got to stop there. This uh, Dirtiest Jobs sermon series, well, I hate calling it that, is supposed to be on the book of Jonah. I mean, hey, preaching on a Bible passage instead of a Dr. Seuss book, that's an improvement for the uh, uh, this pastor over at the Oaks Fellowship, but uh, we continue. Everybody, the call of God is for real. God has called you. God has a job for you to do. Not always easy. Not always simple. Sometimes it's a big, bad, dirty job, but you have a calling, a God assignment on your life. You were created with a purpose in mind. I, should we now officially just call this the purpose-driven heresy or the purpose-driven gospel? This guy is a disciple of Rick Warren, and this sounds so much like all of the same ego-boosting, self-esteem-building garbage that doesn't deal with sin realistically at all and, and bring people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And we continue. And, and, and I'm not saying that, oh, what does he mean? We're all supposed to like quit our jobs and go into full-time ministry as a pastor or missionary. No, only do that if God calls you because we don't need everybody as a pastor. Can I tell you the most inefficient thing we could ever do in the kingdom is everybody being in full-time ministry in the sense of being a pastor or a missionary, all that. I'm here to coach you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to train you and to bring the word of the Lord to you so that you might be built up to go and infiltrate every job, every school, every campus, every neighborhood of this community. All right. Okay, good. My job is to coach you. His job is to preach the word, make disciples. And people, Christians, he's right. The Christians are to be the ones to go out into the world. Well, we continue. You are called to be a man of God. You are called to be a woman of God. And that calling is for real on your life. 
No matter what job you hold, the number one calling of your life is to be a man of God or to be a woman of God and to be used for him. That the people around you that you influence every day and you come into contact every day would come to the knowledge of Christ. That those who know the Lord would grow in the relationship with him. You have a kingdom assignment on your life. Don't run from his call. All right. Uh, Okay. Decent. Don't run from the call of God on your life. And this is something that the prophet Jonah learned, and we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks. Jonah learned, don't run from God or you'll run into a storm and it'll be bad. You're headed for trouble. Everybody pull your notes out, or if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. It's in your notes as well. Let me read. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Mitti. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to uh, flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do uh, to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, Jonah replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. For the last couple of weeks as I've been... Stop. Now, you just heard a very large portion of the book of Jonah. That is good. Can't complain about that. But let's see what he does with this text. Remember, he's supposed to be preaching on the text itself, telling us what it means, helping us to understand the deeper issue, and pointing us to Christ in this text. Let's see if he does that. Preparing not only for this message, but for this series... As I've prayed, I've sensed God uh, speaking to me in a, in a real powerful way. What? He just read to us the word of God, and now he's saying that he senses that God is speaking to him in a powerful way? This is a red flag. Hmm. Basically telling me that this isn't just another message. This isn't just another Bible study. This isn't just another Sunday morning. And that this isn't just another series, but this is a prophetic word for our church. What? This is a word. And if you don't know what it means, prophetic word, what that means is this is a word specifically for the people who are listening to this message right now, specifically for the Oaks Fellowship group of churches, all campuses, everybody who's associated here. This is a word for you today for this time. Is he actually going to claim that he's got a prophetic word from God, that God spoke to him directly like like God spoke to Jonah and that he's supposed to deliver a prophetic word to the people at the Oaks Fellowship churches? 
And as I've been praying, it's like every day, man, I've just been praying in the power of God consuming my life, speaking to me about three huge things he wants to speak to us. Because it says here in Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the same way what I'm telling you today is what I'm about to tell you is the word of the Lord for the oaks. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's not going to tell us what the text means. He's using this as a jumping off point to, for him to actually deliver what he believes is a specific word of God for the people of the Oaks Fellowship in a prophetic way. By the way, if you believe in Sola Scriptura, then you can immediately rule this stuff out. And the word of the Lord for you. This is a strategic moment. This is a strategic time in the kingdom, especially for those of you who are part of this congregation, because God wants your attention today. He wants to speak to you. How many of you are ready to hear from the Lord? Say a big amen. Uh, I'm not saying amen to that. You just read God's word to me that I just heard the word of the Lord. What are you talking about? You're creeping me out here, pastor. How many of you are ready for the Lord to give you a specific, unique word for your life? Say amen. amen. Unique word? What? All right, here we go. It's in your notes. Number one. As I was praying this last week, the Lord told me to tell you this. Whoa. <laughs> hey, wait a second there, pastor. Your job is to preach God's word. And you're saying that God told you specifically to tell these people something? Oh, Nelly, we've got a problem here. Folks, if you know anybody who's attending the Oaks Fellowship, you need to, as a Christian, get them out. This is really dangerous. Backing up the tape for a second here so you can hear it in context. Here we go. For your life, say amen. amen. All right, here we go. It's in your notes. Number one, as I was praying this last week, the Lord told me to tell you this. You need to dream bigger. Oh, really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Oh, it doesn't, because you're claiming that this is a specific word that you got from the Lord. Yet it contradicts God's word. You need to dream bigger. God's just been dealing with me that we need to dream bigger dreams. We need to pray bigger prayers. We need to recognize... Stop dream bigger dreams, pray bigger prayers. Jesus, when asked, uh, Lord, how should we pray? Said this, when you pray, say, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How do we make that bigger? I mean, are we going to argue that that wasn't a good prayer? That it's somehow less of a prayer because it's not big? Got some problems here, folks. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff. Him for who he is. If he is the creator God of the universe, he made the heavens and the earth. He made all that. If he's almighty, all knowing, all powerful, what are we doing? Praying these small prayers and dreaming small dreams and earthly dreams and, and dreams that we come up with. Come on guys. Let's dream in a way that's worthy of who he is. I don't even know what that means. 
I mean, last time I... Uh, never mind. This is, this is just terrible. God is just speaking to me to challenge you today that we need to dream bigger. You see, Jonah, he had a dream. Okay, now watch what he's doing here. This is important. You heard the first opening segment, big segment, in the book of Jonah. You heard it in context. You heard the story from the time God said that the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before him and he's going to judge them and he's sending Jonah there to preach repentance to them, right? If you read the story, the story speaks for itself. But he now started off in Jonah 1.1, basically saying the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And now apparently the word of the Lord has come to uh, this pastor at the Oaks Fellowship. Just the same way. So the text here is not, he's not telling us really what the text says. The text is a jumping off point for this personal revelation that this pastor Scott Wilson has uh, been receiving. He's the only one in the dream. He's dreaming about himself. He's dreaming about his own pleasure. He's dreaming about his own problems. He's dreaming about his own issues. His dream is that God would give him all the blessing, all the help, all the provision, all the strength that he needs to do what he wants to do. Now, notice it doesn't say that in the text anywhere. Okay. In fact, just to make sure what we're going to do is I'm going to open up the book of Jonah here. And we're going to read it in context. Why? Because context is important. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, hang on a second here, verses, there we go. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa, to find a ship going to Tarshish. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly why he did what he did, and it doesn't tell us what he was thinking when he did it. In fact, many times I've read this passage going, what was he thinking? Do you really think you can run from God? We know his actions, but we don't know exactly what's going on in his psychology, and somehow he's interpreting the psychology here, and I'm not sure how he's doing it. That was his dream. And the whole time he was so consumed with himself that he didn't, he, he didn't see and understand the heart of God. What was God's heart about? God's heart was burning for the people of Nineveh, the wicked, big, bad, dirty people who were dying and going to hell. Those who are apart from God, who are in their wickedness. God saw their heart and he saw, this is the time. I put them in the right place in the right time. Their hearts are open to hear of me right now. So Jonah. Hold on a second here. Rise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He's reading a lot into that. I don't see the same things he's seeing in the text. I want you to go to them and tell them to repent and to change. But Jonah is so consumed with his own issues, he's missing the God-appointed revival that God wants to bring to the city. God's dreaming cities. Jonah's dreaming for himself. <sighs> Doesn't say anything about God dreaming in the book of Jonah, does it? He's inserted that into the text, and it's foreign, and it's not right. You know, as I was praying this week, I was just thinking, 
You know, man, our nation, our city, the people all around us who are hurting and struggling and scared and full of fear. Come on, guys. Don't you understand? God's got them in a place where they're seeking him. No, scripture says no one seeks God. No one. All have sinned and turned away. All have fallen short. All. Read Romans 3. They're open for something. They're looking for truth. They're looking for hope. They're looking for help. No, they're not. We are wicked sinners. When God sends somebody to preach repentance to us, it's not because that's what we're looking for. Otherwise, we wouldn't need somebody to come and preach repentance to us. Oy, oy, oy. Hey guys, if we're so consumed with our own fear and our own worry and our own situation that we're not listening to the heart of God, we can be so consumed with ourselves, we missed out on the God-appointed revival he wants to bring. So do you think that by shouting it, he, you know, people say, oh yeah, that, this has to be from the Lord, because he was shouting it. Dream bigger! Think bigger! Dream of cities. I mean, God's dreaming that the king's going to repent. The city's going to repent. That's what, come on, guys. Do you believe the heads of state? It doesn't say that God dreamed anything. It just said that the wickedness of Nineveh had come up before him. And he was sending Jonah to go preach against them. That nations could have revival. Do you still believe cities could be touched? Are you in the mentality of, oh, it's too big. It could happen. Listen, nothing is impossible for God. I said, nothing's impossible for God. Oh, come on, we got a dream big. And our dream isn't a, oh God, you're up there to fulfill my dreams. No, I'm here to accomplish his dreams. You know, I, I got a little glimpse of that this last couple of weeks. It was three years ago, uh, I began to pray for my friend. God laid him on my heart. His name's Jim. Exegeting his own life here. And right back here uh, on the wall, before this building was complete, I wrote his name, his wife, his kids on the wall. And for the last three years, the Lord laid him on my heart to pray for him, just to pray and, and, and to be their friend and to pray. Because my dream, my dream, guys, is that someday they're going to be in the baptismal tank back here, you know, and they're going to be giving their heart and going public with their faith in Christ. I mean, it'd be awesome. I've been faithful to pray, been faithful to be their friend. Two years. Uh, so that's what baptism is. Just going public. It's a Christian bar mitzvah. Oh, two weeks ago, Jim called me on the phone. And uh, he said, hey, Scott, I need to talk to you a minute. I said, yeah, what's up? He said, um, hey, this is kind of serious, kind of different than anything I've ever talked to you about. And I said, well, what is it? He said, well, listen, here's the deal. I'm a little concerned about our kids. You know, D. Will's doing good. And that's what he calls my eldest son, Dylan. D. Will. Because it's Dylan Wilson and Will is Wilson and D is for Dylan. D Will. Yeah, couldn't figure that one out. Thanks for explaining. Working that out for you there. So he said, I know D Will is doing good, but listen, not all his friends are. And he said, some of his friends I know personally are, are going to some parties and going to some places and doing some stuff that I'm really concerned. I'm concerned that they're going to miss out on a college scholarship or, you know, they're going to not, not go to school or something happen or they get in trouble. And I just, you know, I was just talking to some of the dads in the booster club. We were just thinking maybe, maybe we could have you, you know, cause the boys respect you. They know you and this kind of what you do, this kind of your field of expertise. So we were thinking maybe you could come out and maybe we could get some of the dads and the kids together each week and you could just start 
start teaching uh, the boys on how to make good choices, how to make better choices, and, and, and to do the right thing. You think you could do that? And I said, well, I did that for DeSoto High School for seven years. Seven years straight before every football game, I was there for a chapel for 30 minutes. And, uh, man, we had a great thing. He said, I knew I called the right guy. I said, but, Jim, let me tell you something. This isn't just about them getting into a college or getting a scholarship. And this isn't just about them saying no. This is about them finding a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and then finding the purpose and the calling of their life. It's about them growing up and realizing there's something bigger than just saying no to stuff. There's something bigger than just girls. There's something bigger than just having a nice car and a nice house. The the big thing is that they get connected to God and realize they have a Savior in heaven who loves them and that, that he has a calling on their life and for them to be raised. Well, you can't say he doesn't have a passion for the lost. It's obvious that he does. The problem here is, is that we're not using scripture to guide that passion. You have to be great men of God, great dads and great husbands. I mean, this is what it's about. And on the other line, he goes, yeah, that, that's even better than what I was saying. <laughs> I said, I'm in, man. I'm in. Let's do it. He said, all right, I'm going to call the booster club. We're going to talk about it. Let's see what we can do. Maybe we can start meeting Do you understand what I'm saying? I was praying for a family, and rightly so, because that's who God called me to pray for. But what I didn't know is that this man and his family could open the door to a whole community. I was dreaming about my friend, and God was opening up the city. This sounds like a Joel Osteen sermon in some ways. And that's what God wants to do with us, guys. Each one of us, uh, he wants to open the doors as we walk in obedience to him. It was just a couple of weeks ago on Tuesday morning prayer. You know, Pastor Jackson uh, from Uganda was here leading our prayer meeting. And I was down front praying here. And at the end of the, the prayer time, kind of close to there, I was down praying. And he came over to me and he laid hands on me and he kept the mic to his mouth. So he wasn't just saying it to me. He was saying it to everybody that could hear in the prayer time. And he began to prophesy. He began to speak from the Lord. And this is what he said. I see nations on fire. Nations on fire. I see generations being raised up. I see the DNA of this house is to reach millions, not thousands, millions. This is who you are. This is who this place is all about. To be raised up. Uh, the, The church that preaches from Dr. Seuss books. If they're going to reach millions of people, they're not going to reach them with the gospel. And they're going to reach them with this purpose-driven garbage. Oh, man, I hope this... Nations on fire. And everybody was here, man. They were just getting excited. I had my hands up and they were going, yes! You know, I was just shot. You know why? Because I didn't just recognize it as the words from Pastor Jackson. I recognized that they were the words of the Lord, the same words he had spoken to me 12 years ago when I was in Santiago, Chile. And he woke me up at 5 a.m. in the morning and he said, come here, I want to talk to you. As I went off to pray, God told me, you're going to pastor a church of great people, a significant church and a significant people. And in the last days, I'm going to raise up a generation, a new generation who is totally set apart to me, who will be sent out to them from that place to the nations of the world to bring the end time revival they will um notice what he's preaching on here not biblical texts or the biblical text that we read he's preaching on these so-called prophetic words that he's apparently been receiving come from that house a significant word come on guys He doesn't even know us, and he's saying word for word. That sounds a lot like nations on fire and generations being raised up. 
What I'm telling you is God is at work in our week as I was praying. Acts 2, 17 kept coming in my heart, exploding in my soul, where, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord in the last day is going to be poured out on all flesh. And the, and the uh, sons and daughters are going to pray. Uh, wasn't that fulfilled at the day of Pentecost? Uh, read Acts chapter 2. Prophesy. I mean, the young men are going to see visions and the old men are going to dream dreams. Come on, guys. He says, in the last day, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everybody who wants it. Everybody who receives on all flesh, they will receive of me. And the young men and the young ladies will prophesy. Oh, I love that. There are going to be young people praying, young people seeking God, young people flowing in the spirit, young people who say, I care more. He's kind of delivering this with the same cadence as uh, Paula White about the spirit of God than I do about the stuff of this world. People, young people on their face before God, hearing the word of the Lord and speaking the word of the Lord. A young men seeing visions. That's young men coming. Yeah, he's, he's screaming a lot, but he's not really telling us anything about what God's word says. Unless, of course, you believe that God actually spoke to him personally. I mean, if that's the case, then what do we need a Bible for? forward and saying, I give my whole life. I'll live every day for you, God. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to live for this world. I want to live for you. A vision to live for him. And then those who are old among us, people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and beyond, people who've been through it, people who've been through tough times and hard times and difficult times, the Lord says this, do not let the circumstances of your life whittle away at the God-sized dream within you. Uh, No, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Not one place in Scripture does it say anything about problems of life whittling away at God-sized dreams. No, I'm not familiar with that verse. If God's giving a dream, He will bring it about. God's breathing His Spirit upon us to say, "Rise up, people of God." And recognize his will cannot be thwarted. His calling is sure. What he promised you will happen. Be faithful to him. And those of you who have been brokenhearted in difficulty times, you need to cry out to him and say, give me the dream again. Oh, whoa. Do you see any of that in Jonah chapter one? I didn't. I mean, maybe I missed it. Maybe it's between the lines. Give me the dream again. God says, quit praying the small prayers and dreaming small dreams. Give uh, no, he doesn't say that anywhere. Nowhere. Not anywhere in the Bible at all. Presence and recognize how big I am and dream a dream worthy of who I Jonah's thinking of himself and God's looking for somebody who will take a city. Dream a dream that's worthy of himself? <sighs> Say, well, I don't get it. How, how's that going to happen? How in the world could a Metroplex be touched? How in the world could a city be transformed where the political government in place would be totally in alignment with him? That the education system would be in alignment with him? The marketplace would be in alignment with him? How could all the... Is, how can this... I'm just too big. It cannot happen. Listen, nothing is impossible for him. And you say... Agree. Nothing is impossible for God, but you're really not applying this properly so that we're understanding what that really means. Hey, well, where do we begin and where do we start and what do we do? Here it is. Number two in the notes. Here it is. First point is dream bigger. Point two is this. Say yes. 
Everybody say. Uh, dream bigger and say yes. Okay. How is this going to help anything? Say it with me. Say yes. Ready? One, two, three. Say yes. How does this uh, lead people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. That is the key to the move of God. That is the key to the revival he wants to bring. That is the key to the transformation he wants to bring to your family. So God wants to bring a revival? Well, if God wants to, then don't you think he's capable of doing it? To your life, to the community, to our nation. It's yes. You see, God speaks to Jonah and he says, go to Nineveh, talk to those people, tell them to repent. Their sin and wickedness has come to me at this time. Do you understand what he's saying? Go at this place at this time because it's time. They're ready. And tell them this to these people at this time. It's going to happen. Yeah, that was God speaking to Jonah. And all he had to do is say yes. But here's the thing. He said no. He ran the other way. He's missing the God appointment. He's missing the God assignment. He's being disobedient. He's missing out because he's so consumed with missing out. He's being defiant and disobedient. With himself, he's deaf to the heart of God. Yeah, that's because by nature we're all sinners and we are not only deaf to the heart of God, we want God dead. We want to take the place of God. And so here's the deal. The move of God will take place as we say yes. And and you may even feel... Um, pastor, did you notice something? God gave them a, God gave Jonah a very specific thing to do, right? Gave him a very specific thing to do. A little overwhelmed at times I do. Well, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to do it? Where are we going to hold them? How we don't have enough people? We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough way. We don't have any plans. Here's what the Lord says. I just call you to do what I tell you to do. Go where I tell you to go. Say what I tell you to say. Go to the people in the time I tell you. And if it's the right time in the right way and it's in his timing, he will bring it about. Notice this. God did not say, Jonah, go and bring revival to Nineveh. He didn't say, go talk to the king and make him change his mind. He didn't say, go over there and I'm going to hold you accountable to what they do. No. He said, just go to him and tell him to repent. And God says, I'll handle the rest. We do not have to carry the burden of revival. We don't have to carry the burden of transformation. We don't have to carry the burden of paying for it. We don't have to carry the burden of all this. All we have to do is wake up in the morning and say, yes, say yes, say yes. When you tell me to go there, I'll go there. When you tell me to speak to them, I'll speak to them. When you tell me to do this, I'll do that. When you tell me to give this. Okay, so pastor, if you're okay, you just got to do what God tells you to do, and you just need to say yes. You do understand that as a pastor, you are obligated under Second Second Timothy chapter four to preach the word in season and out of season, and that we Christians are tasked with the job of preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus to all nations. Um, that's pretty basic and straightforward. Would, why don't you get off this little rant that you're doing and just say yes to those things? My whole life is yes. Jonah said yes if it pleased his own heart. We've got to have a carte blanche yes to God that says yes before we even know what he's saying. How about when we know what he said? Yes! Wake up. Come on. What if everybody in this whole place woke up? What if everybody in the sound of my voice listened to this message? What if you woke up 
And you just said, God, I say yes, whatever you want. I say yes, I say yes, I say yes, whatever you want, whatever you say. Because last week I was in prayer. Again, I'm telling you, these Tuesday prayer meetings are pretty powerful. God's talking to us. So I was down here Tuesday praying. And as I was praying, I was saying, God, I don't know. I mean, I know you've given us a promise. I know you've told us you're going to do big things. I know you're going to bring a move of God. I know you want to use us in a huge way, a mind-blowing way, but I don't know how. I don't know. I, I mean, see, here's the thing. God gives you this big vision that's over here. He gives you this promise. He gives you, hey, this is what I want to do. And it's- uh, what does this have to do with the book of Jonah? Jesus Christ, you heard of him? big. You don't want to carve that down and and whittle that down, but it's also you're standing way over here and you're going, how am I getting there? There's all the problems in the middle. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No, I don't know what you're talking about because you're supposed to actually be preaching God's word here. And so I'm sitting there, I'm saying, God, I don't know how we're going to pay for it. I don't know how we're going to do it. We don't have the staff, we don't have the people. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to work it out. I don't know how to do all this. God, I mean, you just got to help me. What do you want me to do? How are we going to do it? How, God? Show me. I need to hear. And about that time, one of the brothers in our church came up and grabbed the mic and said, The Lord, just give me a word. Everybody listen. And on the mic, this is what he says. Step out in the Red Sea and it will part. Step out in faith. Step out in obedience. And as you step out. Oh, man. Nothing about what Christ has done for us. Nothing. Nothing about the forgiveness of sins. And and it's all there in the Jonah story. And we're not being told about what Christ has done. We're just told these stupid slogans. Step out. Say yes. Dream big. Whoop-de-doo. Good night. I will do the miraculous. I will part the sea. Now, as I was praying, I don't live by the Red Sea. Red Sea, Egypt, right? I'm, I'm in, I'm in Indiana. Uh, you know, maybe there's a reservoir near here. Geist Reservoir. I wonder if I stepped out of that thing if it would part. You say, God, is that for me? Is that, are you talking to me? He said, yeah, I'm talking to you. If I gave you a promise and I told you where I was taking you and I told you what I was going to do, do you think the Red Sea is a problem for me? I'm going to take you to the promised land. The Red Sea is not a problem. It's an opportunity for me to show you you're going the right way and I am with you. Uh, Pastor Scott, you're going the wrong way and I don't see how God could possibly be with you because you're not preaching his word and you're not exalting Christ. You are distracting people from the central message of the text, which is Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. The story of Jonah is a beautiful story of God reaching a people and that they repent and God turns away his anger and wrath and they receive forgiveness and mercy. Despite the fact that the person that God sent had his own agenda and didn't want to go and he got upset when they did repent. I mean, it's all there in the text. Listen, the problems in your life you're facing right now is just an opportunity for you to get on your face and say, okay, God, you want to take me over it? You want to take me through it? You want to take me around me? What you want? Because I know we ain't stopping here. God is going to take us to where he's called us. We got to be faithful in the midst of it and step out in faith and see what... And so if you don't get there, then it's because you didn't, you weren't faithful enough, you weren't obedient enough, you weren't... (laughs) Law, 
This is all law, no gospel, and it's not even good law preaching. It's not law preaching that shows you your sin and your need for a Savior. This is, oh boy, despair-causing type law. What he does. So Tuesday night, the elders get together and we're praying for the church. We're praying for you. We're praying for revival. We're praying for God to move. We're praying together. We go about an hour and a half in prayer. And uh, Christy Northup's on the piano and she's leading in worship. She's one of our worship leaders. And she stopped for a minute. She just said, guys, I feel like the Lord just gave me a vision. I just saw a vision. And this- you're, you're kidding me, right? You have Bibles and you think, oh, man. That's what she said. She said, I saw all the faucets of our house on. All the faucets at her house. She said, I saw all the kitchen sink. The faucet was on full blast. I saw the, the bathroom faucets, the shower. Everything was on. He's preaching this instead of God's word. This, so apparently this woman's vision about faucets. It's not in the Bible, but, you know, it was from God. So that means he can preach it from the pulpit. Turned on all the way. There was a full on, full on yes opening. And she said, but the thing is the pressure, the water pressure had diminished. There wasn't enough water coming from the city to keep the pressure on all the faucets coming through. The city had to release more water for the pressure to be there. And this is what the Lord told me is that everybody in our church needs to give a full on yes, a full on commitment. Law, law. And what happens if there's like one schmuck who decides that he's not going to actually give full on commitment? See, it'll keep you guys from experiencing your big dreams, right? And you got to find that guy and toss him out oh man what where's what christ has done where's the gospel where's jesus here hello have you have you heard that the bible's about jesus hello turn it on their heart all the way to god full access to flow through me god and then god says get in my presence and i will bring the flow He said, I will bring the flow. Now, I want you to just imagine, what if you guys over here had a full-on yes, a full-on yes, a full-on yes. Everybody in here, everybody listening to this message, our heart was full blast for God. And we were in his presence saying, tell me where to go, tell me what to say, tell me who to talk to, what do you want me to do in your timing? A full-on yes. Do you not think that he would flood this community with his grace and his anointing and the river of God flowing through this place if we were on all? Why don't you quit talking about his grace and start telling us about his grace. You're, you're just skirting the issue. Just because you've mentioned God's grace doesn't mean you've told me anything about it. All the way, come on, he would do it. If he would do it, a full-on yes. So God would do it if everyone got their act together. So God's up there, he's completely powerless waiting for you to... Get your act together and say a full-on yes so that he can finally move. And, you know, because that's what he's waiting for. In our heart to him. Guys, we've got to dream bigger than just thinking about ourselves and just making it in survival. We've got to have a yes to God. And in doing that, we're, we're going to see the miraculous. So is this like some kind of a Pentecostal version of purpose-drivenism? <sighs> Take place. And we don't have to do, we can do that with great joy. Come together. Well, I don't know how it's going to work. That's his part. But my part is getting in here and listening to what I'm supposed to do. And if I'll do my part and you do your part, I know we can depend on his part. Come on, everybody. He will bring it about. We got to dream bigger. We got to say yes. And then the third big thing the Lord told me to tell you is this. Oh, 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 oh. 
Some of you are running from God and you need to stop running. Some of you are running in the opposite direction of what God's called you to. Some of you in your heart, you're like the prophet Jonah. You carry the title, but you're defunct on your calling. You carry the title of prophet, but you're not following through with your function. You're a believer in God. You're going to heaven. I'm a Christian coming to church. Faithful, faithful. But friends, not only do we have a problem in America for prayerlessness, that we've heard that Americans on average pray two minutes a day. That's a problem. But I'll tell you another problem we have is if we pray more but we don't obey, those are anemic prayers. They're prayers without power because prayer is about having a heart of obedience to connect with God, to find out what he's saying and what he's doing. And then we follow up with faith, with action to do what he's called us to do. We've got to stop running. Well, let's look at the story of Jonah to close. Jonah, he goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat that's going the opposite direction of Nineveh. And as he gets out in the water, what happens? There's this incredible storm that comes so big that even the professional sailors are freaking out going, this isn't a normal storm. This is like a God sent storm. Somebody's ticked God off. Whichever God, they didn't really understand who it was. Cue the sappy music. Jonah stepped up and said, it's me. I've done wrong. So then the first thing they did is they tried to out to row and to, to, to paddle their way out of the storm, to work with all their might to get out. And some of y'all there, some of you are doing everything you can to handle the storm you're in right now. Now, let me tell you something. You may be in a storm right now, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're in disobedience. Sometimes you get in a storm and it's a test. Sometimes you're right there with Jesus, just like the disciples. And they were out on the lake and there's a storm that's come. But you're with Jesus and you're doing the right thing. He'll come up and he'll calm the storm and he'll take it. And you got to be faithful in that moment. But friends, let me promise you this. This is an exercise in not how, this is how not to read the Bible. This is allegorization. This is terrible. Allegor? Global warmingization? No, sorry. If you're running from God, you will head into a storm. How do I know that? Because God loves you so much. He sends a storm not to destroy you, but to stop you from destruction. But to keep you from destruction. Jonah is going the opposite way from where God wants him to be. He sends a storm to slow him down. And it's in that moment, what did Jonah do? He said, throw me overboard. That's all that will work. Just, I give up. I die to myself. I die to my own way. I I quit doing this. Just throw me overboard. That's all that will bring peace. Let me tell you something right now. Some of you are running from God. You're hearing me right now. Listen to me. You're running from God. And that's why there's turmoil in your heart. There is a storm in your soul. Because until you calm. Okay. I want to point something out here. This is a somewhat decent version of law preaching at this point. What's he going to offer as the solution? Is it going to be Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins offered freely by what Christ did on the cross? Let's see. 
into submission of God's will until you find alignment in your soul that you're saying yes to God and what he called you to be and birthed you to be. Until you do that, there will be a raging storm within you. Oh, so it's up to you. You're, you're the one responsible for making this right. And not just within you, but within your family, those people who are in the boat with you, the sailors were innocent. But they were headed for the same destruction because Jonah was in the boat with them. You see, here's the thing. Some of you, your family's in turmoil, your life's in turmoil. And the biggest thing you got to do is not just act like a Christian or act, say a prayer and do all that. Listen, they were all crying out to their gods, throwing lots, trying to do all that. Listen, get rid of the religious activity. How about go back to obedience? So the grand solution in all of this is a completely crossless message. You go back to being obedient and you'll get the storm to stop in your life. It's up to you. And if the storm continues, it's obvious you you're obviously not obeying enough. Whatever God's called you to do. Some of y'all say, oh God, I helped these people last week. They're going through a divorce and I loved them. Oh God, I gave a little bit of extra in the offering for the orphanage. Oh God, I did this and I did that. Listen, that's like Jonah getting on there and saying, I know I serve the real God. He's the real God of heaven and earth. I mean, he's like the real one. You know, y'all, mine's real and I'm his prophet. Well, big deal if you're not walking in obedience. Go back to what he called you to do. Oh, man. Here you're nailing people to the wall for their sins and you're throwing them on themselves for their own solution. You're not even offering them Jesus Christ crucified and the forgiveness of sins offered by Jesus. This is a crime. Die to yourself and say yes to him. So Jesus just sitting there waiting for me to say yes to him. So I, it's up to me to be obedient. And some of you right now, you're saying, but I'm so far gone. I, I started running from him 20 years ago, and I'm still running. Friend, let me tell you, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how long you've run, let me tell you something. You throw yourself overboard. You throw yourself upon God. You die to yourself, and you say, I give myself fully to you. It's in that moment, God will do the miraculous to bring you back. He'll work by his miracle hand to bring you back into relationship with him, back into your calling. He might even send a... Uh, it sounds like a process to me. What about being declared righteous on account of Christ? A miracle fish to bring you back. But you got to give up your running. For the next few minutes, we're going to open up this altar for you to come, to come seek the face of God. Some of you need to come. You need to run to the altar and stop running from him and run to him. Some of you need to get down here and say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm living for you. I get, I get rid of that stuff. I know what you told me to do. Some of you, right now, God's been specifically speaking to you about areas of sin, areas of rebellion, issues in your life. You need to get down here and say, I'm done with it. I give it to you. I give it to you. I throw myself overboard. <sighs> oh, boy. Where is Jesus? Where is the forgiveness of sins? The solution is me. And then I have to wait for God to speak to me personally. And rather than, oh man, this is a mess. Lord, I throw myself on your mercy and your grace. God, change me, bring me back. 
Others of you need to come down and you just need to get down here and say, yes, God. Yes, yes. Whatever you want, I say yes. Wherever you want me to go, yes. God, I open my ears and my heart to you. Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to stop saying no. I'm going to stop delaying my obedience. I say yes to you. And others of you need to get down here and say, God, open my eyes again. Open my heart again to how big you are, how awesome you are, and help me to dream again. God, take me back to... Help me so I can dream big again. Me, me, me. Instead of Christ, Christ, Christ. Huge difference. When I first knew you and I believed you could do anything, God, let me dream for the city. Let me dream for my husband again. I gave up on my wife. I gave up on my kids. I gave up on our school. I gave up on our city. I God, give me your dream and your heart again. Open my heart to what you want. What I'm telling you right now is we're in a moment, a prophetic, divine moment. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Where this community is hungry for something. A rock in the storm. And you're not even feeding them Christ. A help in the midst of trouble. We have it. Let us not be so consumed with ourselves. We missed the moment. He said, rise up and go to the city. Let's pray. God, we open open our hearts to you. We We open our hearts to you. Okay, where does it say we can do that in scripture? We say we need you. We're hungry for you. Help us not to miss it. Help us not to miss it. Help us not to miss it. I pray every single person in this room that, Lord, you would speak to them specifically right now. God, you have a task, an assignment. You have a divine appointment for them in their work, in their school, uh, Lord, in their neighborhood, with their family. God, I pray that you would let every single one of us have a resounding yes. Uh, That way we don't get thrown overboard within our soul to you that you might use us in a huge way help us to dream big and to give our heart fully to you lord those who are running let them run no more let them run to you and not from you how about where christ runs to me you know remember the story of the father and the story of the prodigal son how yeah touch us and draw us to you in jesus name spirit do your work and everybody said Amen. Run. Run. If oh, if you know anybody going to this church, pray for them and help them get out. This is dangerous stuff. It's legalistic, some kind of visionary Pentecostal purpose-drivenism. Oh, what a terrible mix. No Jesus Christ. No forgiveness of sins. What a mess. Oh, folks. It feels weird transitioning here, but it's important that I do so. We're at the end of our program, and I need to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you are growing in your biblical understanding and discernment and are being fed the Word of God and growing and being able to think critically, to think biblically, to learn how to defend the Christian faith, know what you believe, why you believe it, and where it says it in the Scriptures— then will you partner with us? 
you can do so by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button. Or you can send in your check to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Oh, that was depressing what I just heard. Folks, pray for the uh, for the pastors and the people at uh, the Oaks Fellowship. Pray that God would open their eyes to his glorious gospel and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. That we don't have to solve our own problems, that Christ has solved our problem for us. He's calling us to repent of our sins and to trust in him and his mercy and forgiveness. He's not calling us to dream big because the big dream that God purposed from the beginning, the one that he promised in the garden when Adam and Eve fell, that the one he would send, the seed, would crush the head of the serpent. That's already happened. The big dream is the cross of Christ. And we have been given the message of going out and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, won by Jesus Christ on the cross. That was God's big dream. And his forgiveness and mercy even extends to you. Yeah, you that person who's been running from God, who wants him dead, who's been disobedient to the hilt and even goes to church. Christ is offering you his full and complete pardon. He loves you and died for your sins and mine. This is the good news that we've been given to proclaim, not this other stuff. Folks, if you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Hey, until tomorrow, God bless you.